0: You're listening to the Outdoor Photography Podcast, episode 36. Today is a special Tidbit Tuesday episode because two of our favorite guests, Sarah Marino and Jennifer Renwick, are returning to the show to give some expert tips on how to photograph, wait for it, mud. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Brenda Petrella, the creator of Outdoor Photography School. Join me as I sit down with top landscape and nature photographers and outdoor industry experts to chat about creativity, composition, photography tips and techniques, essential gear, safety in the outdoors, respect for nature, and so much more. Tune in every week to learn how to create compelling and impactful images while exploring and enjoying the natural world. Welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Hey everyone, Brenda Petrella here, here to help you create better images and reconnect with nature. Today, we are talking about photographing mud and other repeated types of patterns in nature. But before we do, I just want to thank those of you who have already participated in the Outdoor Photography School survey. December is the time of year when I start planning out goals for OPS in the new year, and I value your feedback as part of that process. So I'd love to know what your goals are for photography this year and how OPS might be able to help you reach those goals. So if you have a minute to complete a short survey, I would really enjoy hearing from you. So I'll put a link to the survey in the episode description and the show notes. And thank you in advance for taking the time. As you know, I enjoy getting your submitted questions, and if you have a question you'd like me to answer on a Tidbit Tuesday, just click the link in today's episode description or go to outdoorphotographypodcast.com and click the button to record your question. This week's listener question is a write-in from one of our loyal listeners, Denise, who wrote, One thing I still don't seem to be able to grasp are images of mud cracks or roots or something that repeats itself from foreground through the background. I don't do focus stacking, so I'm guessing in order to create those types of images, that is necessary. I do get low to the ground with my camera, usually on my stomach, but my images just aren't right, and I don't have that cool perspective. Of course, not everything is in focus in the frame either, and I would love to learn how to do this. Well, thank you, Denise, for this great question, and I'm sure you are not alone in wondering how to best achieve this effect. And I actually have not had the opportunity or pleasure to photograph mud cracks yet myself. So I reached out to two of our previous guests who are experts in photographing mud to help us answer this question. And I'm very excited to say that Sarah Marino from episode 13 and Jennifer Runwick from episode 23 are joining us today to share some of their best tips. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this special Tidbit Tuesday episode. Sarah and Jennifer, thank you so much for coming back to the Outdoor Photography Podcast to chat with us today about mud. How are you guys doing? Great.
1: Good. Thanks so much for having us to talk about one of our favorite topics. Yes,
0: yes.
2: I was super excited to do this.
0: <laughs> so let's start there. Let's uh, start off with maybe Sarah, telling us about your love affair with mud. You know, what, what gets you all excited about mud?
1: Yeah. So I was uh, doing a presentation a couple months ago about my evolution as a photographer. And I was looking back at some of my very first photographs just so that I could show the progression of like not knowing what I was doing to knowing a little bit more about what I'm doing now. And some of my very first photos were of peels of mud on the ground in Badlands National Park. So it's like it's clearly something that just has drawn me in from the time I first time I picked up a camera. Like the I think one of the things the themes that you see in my photography is repetition and patterns and organizing chaos into something interesting and so mud patterns and mud tiles and other things in the desert, especially like that, uh, just really naturally interests me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And how about you, Jennifer? What, what's your love affair with mud about?
1: You could
2: say my obsession. Um, my obsession has definitely developed over the last few years. But my fascination with mud actually started back when I was a geology student at Illinois State University. Um, Right before we graduated, we did a field summer series course out in Wyoming um, and South Dakota, where we would head out and map all sorts of rock formations and map out um, swaths of land. It was kind of like our in-field final exam. Um, And over the six weeks there, we encountered so many cool fossilized mud cracks And those just gripped my attention. And I was like, these are so amazing, just because it was so cool to see just that one little kind of like footprint of time, you know, there it is. And it just shows that even though millions and millions and millions of years have gone by the same processes that shape the earth today were very much doing it back then. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's just kind of cool to see that little, you know, kind of stretch of time and see that, you know, it's really not that different nowadays. So that means I can go out and actually see this in real time. And when we started heading to Death Valley, after I became serious about my photography, um, we, you know, obviously found lots of cool mud deposits, cracks, peels, everything. And I think that's when I had my camera in my hand and I went, Oh my gosh, now I can actually like document this in real time. And it's so pretty. And just the way the light." Interacts with the tiles given what time of day it is, you know, twilight, blue hour, um, harsh daylight for beautiful black and whites. Um, they're just so dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can find landscapes of cracks. You can find just a little, you know, 12 inch little spot of mud that has amazing things. And I just think that's what keeps bringing me back to mud cracks. I mean, it was my initial fascination with the fossilized mud from my geology days. Um, and now it's more my love of abstracts and just being able to document, you know, mud and making, you know, just something ordinary extraordinary just from behind my lens and with whatever light nature is giving me that day. It just, you know, they never look the same, and I think that's part of the thrill. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, well, I admire both of your mud crack images <laughs> so much. <laughs> they're they're fascinating to look at, and and you're right. There's there's so many different textures, patterns. You know, they can look sharp and edgy, or they can look soft and curly, blue light cast versus pink versus sort of beige. You know, they're just so dynamic. And you don't really think of that when you think of mud. That seems sort of like plain and simple, but (laughs) it is. there's a much deeper story there. So where did the mud cracks come from? You know, what what kind of weather conditions and geology would form an area that would form these mud cracks? I know uh, you mentioned Death Valley. Obviously, that's a place that has a lot of these playas where the big mud cracks are present. Are there any other locations that form these these giant mud cracks? Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Um, I can answer real quickly the geology part for sure. Um, So you usually need, you know, sediments that wash down a channel or onto a playa. Um, They come down, you know, in kind of liquid mud form. Um, and then you need some very harsh, dry conditions, you know, where the sun, you know, bakes what flooded onto the playa or whatever expansive land. Um, and as the sun and the heat, you don't even actually need extreme heat. You just mostly need dry conditions. Um, as the sun beats down, you know, cracks naturally tend to form because the mud kind of, you know, contracts, um, as it dries and it'll form these really cool tracks or patterns or whatever it's going to do. Um, Obviously, Death Valley is a prime example of erosion and deposition. You know, there's constantly forces changing the landscape there. Um, you know, a lot of people often say, you know, where exactly you know, did you find these mud patterns or mud cracks? And I just kind of chuckle um, and just say, you know, those haven't been there in two years because it changes all the time. You know, I could mm. tell you to go there, but you're you're going to be met with a pile of sand now because it's completely different. Um But generally anywhere there's like a wash or somewhere where there can be flooding and the water, you know, deposits somewhere and takes sediment with it. That's the key. Um, And I've also seen really nice mud cracks in Wyoming. I have found many in Utah. Um, They can really be anywhere you have washes um, or drainages and you get a really good gully washer and then, you know, a period of really dry weather, you know, that's kind of, kind of what you look for. you know, utilizing topography maps to kind of look for drainages and washes is a definite good first place to start.
0: Mm-hmm. And is it a certain time of the year or does it happen year round?
2: I think it depends on where you are. If you're further south in the desert during the winter months and you get some precipitation, I mean, you can easily find it there. I would say as you get up towards the, you know, kind of middle part of the U.S., at least out in the west, it's probably more of a spring, summer, early fall thing. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think I'd say that just based on a few of the things Jennifer said that I'd like to emphasize related to your last question, Brenda, is that the I think the most important thing in finding these kinds of scenes is knowledge of the landscape. Uh, mm-hmm. While you can really luck out. So if I think Jennifer and I would probably agree that some of our best photos in this genre have come from uh, the Mojave Desert and the Utah, the Colorado Plateau. And the the, the situation, like the geological situation that creates these conditions in those different locations are different. Um, mm-hmm. Death Valley does have some slot canyons uh, where water, water rushes through, brings that sediment, or rushes over badlands and brings that out into a flat playa area. But in a place like Uh, the Colorado Plateau, you aren't going to have those same kinds of expanses. It's going to be much more localized based on that regional uh, geography. So having some knowledge of the, the, just the general, the like specific Uh, locations, the geography of those locations, when potentially flash flooding or heavy rain happens, like the time of year that those things happen, that local knowledge is going to be essential because some of the, the coolest situations that both of us have photographed, it's just knowing that, oh, there was flooding, crazy flooding rain. There's a good chance that this particular location could have some interesting conditions so we're going to head there immediately because what today is going to look like beautiful scalloped soft mud wet mud or sand in a couple of days is going to look much more dried out it might start getting some peels on the surface a couple weeks later it might be completely dried out to the point of having cracks and then a year later you go back to the same spot and it's nothing but powder. Uh, like hmm. the one of the coolest places that Jennifer and I visited together in Death Valley, uh, it started out be, we call, we're calling it mud fantasy because it was just a <laughs> massive <laughs> expanse of these beautiful scalloped wet mud ripples that, different colors and then adding in all the beautiful light that you get in the desert on clear days. We had all sorts of opportunities over the course of a week. It was one of the best photography experiences I've had for sure with intimates and abstract landscapes. And then uh, my husband and I walked back out to this location last year and it's literally powder. Like there's none of that is left. So it's incredibly ephemeral it, can, it changes very quickly with dry, like Jennifer was talking about, with dry and hot weather uh, can transform very, very fast. Uh, so that, it's that local knowledge and being t- willing to go out and explore and, uh, and then put your photography knowledge together, all of that has to come together to take the types of photographs that we're talking about.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And so typically, after a big rainstorm or a big flood, how many days would you wait before knowing or feeling like, okay, this would be a good time to start looking for mud cracks. Um, I know it depends on the type of mud, you know, <laughs> if it's curling or peeling or big cracks, but is there sort of a minimum amount of time that you would wait for it to dry out?
1: Like so, as long as the road, as long as you can get there and you won't get stuck on the road. Because (laughs) if you're going for cracks, it totally depends on the situation. Like it could take like in Death Valley in March is going to take a totally different amount of time to dry out than it will like the middle of winter in Utah. Um, But I think Jennifer and I would both agree that if you instead of just looking for mud cracks like mud that has dried, contracted and cracked. That there's a full spectrum of opportunities from like the moment the rainstorm is done and
0: mm-hmm. you have
1: more of the the beautiful scalloped uh, sand and mud patterns, like in washes, sometimes on playas. Like those are tremendously beautiful opportunities, too. Um, yeah. And I, I think both of our portfolios show that diversity of in different interpretations at that entire continuum. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. for sure.
2: The really fresh wet mud that Sarah is talking about, I mean, that's almost become more of my favorite mud to shoot over the years. Um, just because depending on the patterns and the light and it's just so slick and so smooth. Um, I know this sounds ridiculous, but and <laughs> you know, describing this, it almost yeah. sounds a little scandalous. Um <laughs> But you know, it's just I the color, because mud is very reflective, especially when it's wet. So if you've got A really orange sunset that color is going to reflect back um one interesting thing that we just did we um were in utah um end of august beginning of september and utah had quite a significant and prolific monsoon season um this year which was good to see um but we went out about it was probably about four days after the rain um, We just wandered down. We were just being curious, which drives a lot of, I mean, Sarah would agree with this, you know, curiosity drives a lot of our photography. And that's really how we encounter some of these mud patterns. It's just, you have to be curious. You have to be willing to explore and have the patience. Um, and you'll discover and stumble upon so many new things. So David and I were just curious. We knew there was this one wash um, in years past that had some other cool things. And I said, well, let's just see what happened after this rain. And we were greeted with literally about two and a half miles of just fresh, wet mud that, you know, was reflecting gorgeous twilight colors. Um, we went back the next afternoon. Um, and because of the wildfire situation this year in the West, we actually had really orange, hazy skies that afternoon. And the mud reflected that crazy light. And I saw colors that I had never seen before. Wow. Um, so yeah, I, I, I used to, I mean, mud cracks are still really beautiful but now i almost have another obsession with like finding fresh mud um mm-hmm. and like wet paint it's just you know it's so fun to find it's so smooth it's been untouched and the little curls and scallops that sarah was talking about are just so fun to photograph and follow and kind of let your you know creativity and your mind kind of just wander off into the fun zone and um but yeah i like sarah said i, I don't really it's hard to pin down a time um because it's just it's so different. Um, Mm -hmm. But I said, like, I think in Utah, it was about three or four days post when the flood cleared, that we were able to find like those fresh patterns. And that was like fall.
0: Yeah, it would be
2: different in the dead of
0: summer. Yeah, that makes sense. So going back to our listener question from Denise, when she was asking about how to create those near far compositional perspectives where You know, you're down low to the ground and you've got the big mud cracks in front of you and they extend off into the distance, you know, with these like really appealing types of leading lines and that sort of thing. That seems like that's one type of uh, mud composition that's found out there. And then another one would be more of a top down view of the mud where the composition itself is the the actual pattern and repetition in the textures that it's formed in the mud itself. It, there's no sky included in that type of composition. So I'm hoping that we can talk about both approaches and give us some of your tips on how you would approach let maybe let's start with the near-far composition and then we'll go to the more intimate mud scene, how you would compose that down to how high is your tripod off the ground, how are you dealing with focus points and maybe a little bit about like what aperture you're using focal lengths and things like that. And I know it's going to be different for every image, but uh, just generally speaking, if you were instructing someone in the field, how to create a near far image of mud cracks, how would you go about that?
1: Well, I, I guess I could start on this one. And the first thing I would say is that it's, it's not just grand landscapes that would include that. Um, I think uh, this is something I always talk about when I'm uh, teaching about my photography, which I generally consider as being beyond the grand landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of my mud abstract photographs are taken at 16 millimeters. Um, so mm-hmm. they're very wide scenes with my camera facing kind of diagonal to the ground. So it would be the sem- some of the same technical challenges. Uh, so if you're photographing a big wide scene with mud cracks coming in from all along the foreground leading to some kind of background. If you're at F16 on a full frame camera and you're focused like at three and a half feet in, which would be the hyperfocal distance for that type of situation, there's a, you'll probably get most of your scene in focus. If you're very precise with your focusing, if you're at anything, but that scenario the, the answer is probably going to be focus stacking. Um, mm-hmm. And for those of you that are listening that aren't fully familiar with focus stacking, focus stacking is when you essentially leave everything exactly the same. So your aperture, your shutter speed, your ISO, your where your camera is set up on a tripod, the only thing you change is your focus point. So with a grand landscape, you might have, uh, where you can't get everything into focus in a single frame, you might have three fo- two or three focus points, one for the immediate, very close, near foreground, one a little further back, and then maybe one for the background or f- somewhere further back, depending on what your specific scene looks like. And then you could take those into a software like Helicon Focus, uh, which is what Jennifer and I both use. And then the software will blend those together so that you have a f- everything in focus from the very... F- Front edge of your frame to the very back, whatever is the furthest away from you. So in that type of scenario, uh, you might be really close down to the ground with something really close to you. Um, But I think another thing to think about if you're doing a grand landscape is sometimes it's not best to be that close in in the first place, because the closer you are to the, the tiles potentially in the front of your composition, the less you're going to have in your midground. So it might look like a few really big tiles and then something in the background with nothing in between to connect them. So Mm -hmm. when I'm thinking about that kind of composition, I actually usually raise my tripod up to at least waist high or even eye level because then I often feel like I get the bigger sweep. So where you feel like, You can see more of what's happening on the corners coming into a foreground and then a progression through the midground, uh, then towards the background. So uh, and when you do that, then sometimes you don't have things quite as close in your foreground, which means that you don't have to do the focus stacking Um, since Denise mentioned not really liking or like not wanting to do focus stacking, that getting further away from your foreground means that from a technical perspective, you might not have to do focus stacking if you're at a, a pretty wide focal focal length.
0: Um, yeah, that makes sense. So, and then are you at that point pointing the lens down just a little bit to to get more of the foreground in the frame and um, have the horizon sort of at the top part of the framing of the image?
1: Um, it's so, it's so specific. It would be nice if we had a one photo that we could talk about as an example. I think it, it varies so much. So if, if I were photograph, so let's take out the sky and okay. we're just talking about like the widest of intimate landscapes or abstractions uh, where I'm filling the frame with my mud cracks. The things that I'm going to be thinking about in terms of composition will be like, how are the lines entering the corners and the edges are things feeling balanced? Like if you divide it into quadrants, does it feel balanced? And if not, is it a good like off balance feeling? Does it feel like there's movement from the tiles? Are there, are they similar? Are there any things that are visual distractions that don't add? Um, and then, so those are some of the compositional decisions. And then almost in every case, if I'm pointing my camera da- diagonally down at that kind of scene, technically I'm going to have to do some focus stacking. Um, it's just not an option like if you want everything sharp from front to back the chance chances are that you will not technically be able to get that kind of scene in focus in a single single file you might only need one more for one one corner that's a little that's further away but you you might need up to five or six or seven even so um I think the main answer for that kind of photography, if you're interested in doing things where you're pointing diagonally at a subject that's fairly close to you, um, that you just focus stacking is the answer, and it's not that complicated once you learn the basic technique and then you learn the software. But I don't want to dominate, so let's hear what Jennifer has to say about this too.
2: Oh, yes. No, you're fine, Sarah. <laughs> this is what you're amazing at. Um, I really don't have anything to add. The well, I I just have a few little like kind of out of the technical box things to add um that i've found helpful over the years um so especially for these wider scenes where you just have like playas of expansive mud cracks um one thing that i've realized you know when we've taken classes out there you know the excitement is you know palpable and you know everyone's super like oh my goodness look at these mud cracks they're amazing and then in about five minutes time that excitement kind of dies down and then you kind of see like terror on the face you know it's kind of like, well how do i even compose this oh my goodness there are cracks going every which direction um, right so tip number one for a scene like that always arrive super early give yourself that time to walk around compose things um you know one thing i even tell people to do just so you don't fall into that tripod hole syndrome as i call it where You get super excited, you find something, you plant your tripod, and then you just don't move for the next like hour. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, even take your cell phone out. I mean, it's the equivalent, I think, to like kind of like a 35 um, wide lens. Um, But I use that a lot just to kind of, you know, free my hands, kind of to free my mind, walk around out there with my smartphone, kind of line up some interesting compositions on that before I commit to my camera, Mm -hmm. Um, like Sarah alluded to. Don't forget to move up and, you know, your tripod up and down. Change your perspective. Um, Sometimes that might enlighten you to other compositional choices that you didn't think you had. Um, But yeah, just give yourself that time to explore. These are definitely never a subject unless you're super, super lucky and, you know, the landscape gods are smiling on you that day where you walk out on the playa, go, oh, right in front of me. Here we go. Snap. Done. Epic banger like yeah. <laughs> that usually that's not how that goes um it's a lot of painstaking walking around you know choosing your compositional choices but just give yourself that time so you're not super stressed and if something is happening with the light you know you're just not a stressed unhappy photographer trying to catch that um so give yourself you know give yourself the time to explore um and then don't be afraid to you know change your perspective um mm-hmm. because i think you know sometimes it might surprise you um, but as far as technically, like I don't have anything to add to Sarah. She did a wonderful job. That's exactly like, how it should be. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: Um, and so, are you both mostly using wide-angle lenses uh, for you know soft mud, cracked mud type of images, or do you switch to the telephoto or a medium focal length as well, depending on how you want to compose it?
2: Um, I'll just answer super quick. So, if it's a wide scene, um, I'll always use my wide angle. I don't really reach for that too much now these days, um, but occasionally I still get it out. Um, But for most of my like really abstract intimate shots, it's either my 28 to 300. um, I shoot Nikon or I think this would surprise a lot of people too. I've actually captured quite a few of my abstracts with my wide angle, just shooting straight down. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's a, a myth that you have to have a macro lens for all those shots and you definitely don't. Um, the mid range telephoto or a wide, I mean, of course, a macro would be exciting and fun to use too. But um, yeah, so wide angle shots, definitely, or the big open shots, definitely my wide angle, but my more intimate shots, I would
1: say nine times out of 10, it's my like 28 to 300.
0: Mm-hmm. And how about you, Sarah?
1: I think that I, I agree completely with Jennifer, except for I have a little bit wider focal range uh, because I just added a 500 millimeter lens to my kit. So I have everything from 14 to 500 with that 1.4 X teleconverter. And for this type of photography, I would use every single one of those tools. And then Mm -hmm. uh, I think the common perception is, is with all intimate landscape photography and abstracts that you're either using a telephoto or a macro lens. And those are both from my perspective, essential tools. But some of my favorite photographs from my collection of mud cracks and mud patterns and ripples, it's like 16 millimeters, like right at my feet, a big expansive scene with lots and lots of repetition throughout. So in that case... I might look, I attract a lot of strange looks, like what is that woman doing with her lens pointed towards the ground? But like, yeah, like my wide angle lens is great in those circumstances because um, you, you can also really play up the exaggeration. So if you're photographing something At 14 millimeters pointed at an awkward angle towards the ground, then you're exaggerating those lines coming in from the edges. So you're taking one of the things that with a wide grand landscape, let's say you have trees and they're facing out or they're facing in because they're awkwardly distorting lines. Well, when you're working with an intimate or an abstract subject that has some interesting lines, you can play with that and use it to your advantage because sometimes you can get a feel of like the radial flow towards the center of an image or the radial flow towards the outer edges of the the photograph. So using that wide angle distortion to your advantage can actually be a creative choice that you can make Mm -hmm. with this type of photography. And in this case, I'm talking mostly about scenes that don't include the sky, but it's really just all about repetition and texture.
0: So let's talk about that type of a composition for a minute in terms of setting it up. So, you know, you've got your your lens up above the ground, possibly at 90 degrees to the ground or at an angle. If you are more at 90 degrees rather than sort of at an angle and trying to incorporate more depth, how are you able to, I guess I'm trying to imagine, you know, standing over the tripod, not stepping on the cracks that are going to become my composition, <laughs> not getting the tripod legs in the scene and being able to, you know, one, framing it the way I want to frame it two putting the focus point in multiple positions in order to do focus stacking and doing that all without ruining the actual mud cracks. <laughs> uh, how, how, how do you work that magic? How does that happen?
2: For me, it's just, it's a lot of trial and error, especially if I have my wide angle, um, because yeah, you will see your tripod legs or even your shoes. um, If you're trying to get something, Um, I don't have a center column. So that really helps. So I'm able to, you know, kind of move my legs into really crazy positions to change my angle. Um, It's easier with like a mid range or a telephoto lens, because obviously you don't have that problem if you're, you know, pointed more diagonally out. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's just, about being aware of where you're standing, um, where your composition is just making sure. I mean, we've all done it. I've stepped on tiles that, you know, I've turned around and gone, Oh my God, I should have not done that because those are really amazing. And now it's too late. Um, know, we all do that. Um, but yeah, I, I don't really have anything else to add. Um, it's just, like I said, trial and error and just making sure, you know, what you, what caught your eye is, you know, in your scene and that's what you want to photograph and you know, looking for those like little distractions. And here's a common question I get a lot is, you know, your, your pictures of mud are so clean and there's no debris. Um, you know, how do you find compositions like that? And I'll be completely transparent if there is a stick or a really odd looking rock or anything that takes attention away from the image. I have no shame. I will clone those out in Photoshop. Um, I will clean up my mud. I do generally try to find very clean swaths of mud just to make my job easier. Um, but yeah, occasionally I most definitely do clone out debris. Um, I have no shame and that's pretty much as far as I get into the Photoshop world. So I think I'm doing okay. (laughs) 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 Like I said, I'm not a technical person. So, um, Photoshop scares me. Um, But yeah, so I know I've like rambled on now. So, but yeah, go Sarah.
1: (laughs) Well, one thing Jennifer said, I think is really important to emphasize. Um, she said she puts her tripod in a lot of really crazy positions and when working with be- beginners or people who are new to this kind of photography often they set up their tripod and they want to be really careful to make sure it's completely level uh, and that it like perfect like the legs are all equally spaced out. that is not <laughs> what we're doing here no. um, like <laughs> this is where you're using your tripod to the very extent that it will keep your camera steady like, Uh, having it cantilevered out over the scene in completely awkward ways where it's not level at all the legs might not be even you're in some ways still supporting it a little bit to make sure that it doesn't move during your exposures Uh, just being really careful not to move it because Mm -hmm. awkward angles are one of the main things that characterize this kind of photography so um that's an important thing in terms of setting up. I think the the Brenda, you had also mentioned the like when your camera is facing straight down at your subject. So usually something like ripples or mud tiles uh, are going to be fairly flat. And in that particular case, as long as you're really careful about making sure that the plane of your camera sensor or um, like the, the, the front of your lens is parallel to the ground that will help ensure that you don't have to do any focus stacking. So if you're, you're really opposed to learning how to do the focus stacking thing, like that, the parallel, sensor parallel to your subject, uh, if you're careful and everything is like all the corners are in focus, then you don't have to worry about the focus stacking piece. If your camera is pointed diagonally at your subject, chances are if you're, focus near the front that the back corners at a minimum are going to be out of focus and then in that kind of situation the moment your camera is pointed diagonally especially if you're using a longer focal length that's the point at which the technical things get a little bit more complicated and you have to be thinking about like having your tripod out is it steady enough to do multiple focus points um is the light changing too fast because um it's like, and I have to move even more quickly. So that's where it gets a little bit more complicated, but I generally yeah. think it's worth working through those complications because sometimes that's, yeah. those are the most interesting photos.
0: Right. Right. Okay. And you learn a lot in the process of doing <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> and I
2: just thought of one quick thing as Sarah was talking. Um, one thing I, you know, cause you know, I still make these discoveries myself too. Um, especially when you're dealing with fresh mud or wet mud, um, wander around your subject. So if you're happy with a composition, you shot this like little cool abstract scene, go to the opposite side of where you were shooting to look back on that mud because the shadows change, the colors change. Um, I'm actually putting together an abstracts presentation and I've got a, a little series of images that are the exact same subject composition, but just shot from the opposite angle of where I was shooting and it looks completely different. Um, So always be on the lookout for that. And don't be afraid to, you know, do a whole 360 around your subject just to see how the light changes and the shapes change and the colors change, because it's pretty significant sometimes. And um, you can almost come away with two completely different images of the same subject. And that's really cool.
0: Speaking of light earlier, Jennifer, you had said about the reflected light especially on the on the wetter, uh, I was going to say snow, on the wetter <laughs> sand and mud. Do you use a polarizing filter in those types of images or, or any type of filters?
2: You know, I actually haven't used a polarizer. Um, a lot of the times I really like kind of that harsh contrast on wet mud, um, especially for black and whites. Um, and honestly, yeah, I just, I think it's because it's never really, in Death Valley, I, I don't really get out of polarizer too, too often. Um, and I think it's more the case. I just never have it with me, mm-hmm. but I, I haven't ever felt a need like, Oh, I should have grabbed that to shoot this. Um, I, I definitely don't think you, you don't need a polarizer to go out and do this.
1: Yeah. And yeah. sometimes that glare is what makes the composition interesting. So sometimes mm-hmm. like you, putting on a polarizer and seeing if I'm enhancing the glare, does that look better? If I'm reducing the glare, does that look better uh, without the polarizer? So I think what, like what Jennifer's talking about, walking around, like experimenting with all of these different things that we've talked about from different types of lenses, different perspectives, walking around your subject, experimenting with polarizers. Like those are all tools that help. Like just the idea of experimentation, I think helps you get to like some potentially more interesting renditions of a subject than you might get with that first initial impression.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. That makes sense. So I have never been to the Playa or to Death Valley or to any of these locations. And I, I I do hope that someday I can get there. So I've never walked on mud cracks or anything like that. So in terms of leave no trace principles and you know walking on durable surfaces and that sort of thing, are there areas that are not permitted to walk on or can you kind of just walk wherever and with the crowds that are hitting our national parks and everything, do you get to an area of mud cracks and find that they've been just sort of trampled or, you know, how do we respect the mud crack?
1: <laughs> That's a great oh, way to put it. Stop <laughs> <laughs> <Snatch> the crack. <laughs> well, I, I think the first, most important thing is local knowledge because it depends completely on the scenario that you're in. Uh, there are playas in Oregon and uh, some salt flats in Utah where you can drive on them. So, oh wow. Uh, the, that it ranges from being able to drive on these surfaces all the way to a place like the racetrack in Death Valley National Park, where under no circumstances should you walk on the playa if it's wet. Uh, because like leaving, that's a really special area where these rocks move. Um, oh, usually they're thought to move when the playa ices over and then they slide across the icy surface and then they they stay where Once the ice melts, they stay on that mud that's underneath it. So that's an incredibly special place. And if you're walking on the wet playa, you're interrupting that kind of process. Uh, I, I would say generally my own practices. If I'm walking through the bottom of a slot canyon and come across some ripples and like I, I'm hap- Like I'll walk around them. I'll I'll explore around them. I'll walk through them because it's it's a, essentially a hiking route and you're hiking through the bottom of the canyon, versus a sensitive place like some of the playas in Death Valley where if you're leaving footprints on them, uh, you, in the case of the racetrack, you absolutely should not be on it because it's a really special place. I think in some of the other playas where it's a, it's not quite as clear cut, uh, I think of it in terms of like, am I leaving a huge mess behind me for a photograph. And if I am, then I probably shouldn't be walking on the surface. Um, and then I also think, like, if you find a really special expanse of tiles, don't destroy it. Don't walk all over it. Leave it for the next person because, like, they, if you have found this to be something that was like filled you with this feeling of awe and you're like, a nature is so amazing. This is so beautiful. The fact that this kind of repetition just happens in something as, as mundane as mud like leave that experience for the next person. So I'd say local knowledge, Be absolutely be respectful when rules say to stay off of things. Uh, And then when there's not as clear cut of guidelines, I tend towards not leaving a trace because it's not, my photograph is not as important as protecting that location and leaving it uh, as relatively untouched for future visitors.
0: Yeah. Excellent. I love that. Uh, Jennifer, anything to add to that?
2: No, that's that covers it perfectly. Um, Yeah, a lot of it is just, you know, common sense. And, you know, if you're not sure, you know, always start out at the edge of the playa. And chances are, you know, if your shoe starts sinking, it's, you know, and you're leaving a print, then chances are, you know, it's going to be like that throughout the playa. So don't walk forward anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, if you if you do find out that you enjoy, you know, chasing and photographing mud, um, don't wear your best shoes out. <laughs> that's definitely a duck belly lesson right there because you will sink, you will get muddy and you will get dirty. Um, and your tripod will get muddy and dirty. So yeah, Can't, don't be afraid to use your gear. That's, that's one of the other lessons I would have. I know camera equipment is expensive and we want to keep it nice, but you also have to use it. and I get a lot more joy out of using mine, even if it means I have to clean it more often.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, this has been amazing, you too. Thank you so much for coming on the show and taking the time to answer Denise's questions and, and give us you know all this wonderful knowledge and experience that you guys have from photographing mud. So if people wanted to see some of your mud crack images or your ripples and curls and all of that, where would they go? Uh, Sarah, what, where, where would you direct people?
1: My website, which is smallscenes.com.
0: Great. And how about you, Jennifer?
1: Uh, JenniferRenwick.com.
0: Excellent. And uh, any final thoughts?
1: Um, the, it was fantastic to talk with Jennifer and you, Brenda, about one of my favorite subjects. So the like 10 years ago, Jennifer, would we have ever thought we would be on a podcast talking about this subject? Probably not, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's fantastic and amazing. So thank you, Brenda.
2: <laughs> oh, you're, yeah. you bet. Thank you so much. This is really fun. And I, I mean, I think a lot of people have these questions. So yeah. um, thanks to Denise for her question. And hopefully this... Um, Ah, I was going to use a really ridiculous pun, but I won't. But, you know, <laughs> oh, well, now you have to use it. You know, you have to. You know, mud photography. But yes, um, yeah, it's, it's a really fun subject. It and is. one other little quick thing you can't worry about how ridiculous you look. I know Sarah would agree with me too. Yes. Who cares what you look like photographing mud? If it makes <laughs> you happy and it's interesting, go do it. We've both garnered plenty of crazy looks over our photography careers. Um, Like I was at Zabriskie Point one time and the best mud in the world I've seen was right along the side of the parking lot. And I had my lens pointed down. There was some epic sunset going on and some photographer came over and like tapped me. And he's like, you're missing the best part. And I was like, I'm good. Thanks. Like, I'm happy here. And he was like, you're crazy. Okay. If you, and and the photo
1: Jennifer took that night is awesome. So 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 if you, if you get those reactions, you're doing something Right. Right. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs>
0: oh. Oh, well, that's great. Well, well, thank you both again and for coming back on the show. And I, I hope it's not the last time.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. No, it's always so fun to talk, talk with you. And this time with Sarah, too. Like she said, this was just fun. It's our favorite, one of our favorite topics. Excellent.
0: Well, we'll be in touch. All right. Thank you so much for listening to this Tidbit Tuesday and for your submitted questions. I appreciate you and I hope you got a lot of value out of today's episode. And if you did, take a moment to send a quick message to Sarah and Jennifer to thank them for sharing their expertise with you. And you can find links to Sarah and Jennifer's websites, their previous interviews on this podcast, and the Outdoor Photography School survey in the show notes at outdoorphotographypodcast.com slash 36. Just a quick heads up, being that we're closing in on the holidays, I'm going to be taking a short break from publishing new interviews this month, but I will be here each week with something special for you. So be sure to tune in if you need a little break from any holiday stress. And I also wanted to thank everyone who has supported the show by leaving a rating and review, which you can now do on the new website at outdoorphotographypodcast.com, or by buying me a coffee, or by even just sharing the show with others. It is all making a huge difference in helping the show reach new listeners who share your love of photography and the outdoors. So thank you for your help. And I'll be back here next week. And so until then, get outside, my friends, and find yourself a little nature. Take care.